This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. On March 13, 2013, the world watched for white smoke to appear from a chimney in the Sistine Chapel, named for 15th century Pope Sixtus IV. After it did, the Vatican announced the election of a new pope, whom Rome regards as Christ's representative on the earth, who, Rome says, has the power to speak infallibly from his throne. Is the papacy what Rome says it is and what you will hear later this month that it is? Is Francis really the successor of St. Peter? Is he actually the most recent in an unbroken succession of popes since the apostolic period? Francis is making his first papal visit to the United States on September 22nd of this year. This is a good opportunity for us to reflect on the papacy and to put into context some of the claims that you'll be hearing in the mass media. Here to help us think about the history and significance of the papacy is Bob Godfrey, president and professor of church history at Westminster Seminary, California. He's author of several books, including John Calvin, Pilgrim, and Pastor. This and other titles is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. Hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. There is a new Roman pope, Francis, and with the election of every new pope, reporters and commentators talk about the papacy of St. Peter and an unbroken succession of Roman popes. Is this true? No. (laughs) Can you fill in the story? Why, (laughs) Why isn't it true? I mean, after all, can all these people on all of the television networks and in much of mass media of every kind, can they all be wrong? And if so, how can that be? Well, the first point we could perhaps make and could devote a whole program to is the utter ignorance of American secular journalists of anything religious. You can't trust anything they say about anything religious. They are not religious people by and large. They are not educated in that area of human endeavor and reflection. So you really can't trust them. What we have to go into this recognizing is that the first Vatican Council held in 1870 declared that the Pope was the vicar of Christ and the ruler of the whole church, that he was infallible when he spoke from his throne, that the see of Rome had been kept free from the blemish of error, and that anyone who was not in fellowship with the Bishop of Rome was not a Christian. That claim that the Bishop of Rome was the head of the whole church is a theological claim, but it's also a historical claim. And most of the time, Protestants, I think, react to the claim theologically, which is perfectly fine, and they react biblically, which is even better. But we can also react historically and say, is this claim made by the papacy in its fullest, most developed, most articulate form at the First Vatican Council in the 19th century, is that claim historically valid? Is that claim historically sensible? And we can say in the first place, it seems to me, that that is a claim that has never been true in the history of the church. The claims of the papacy have never been recognized by the whole church, unless you simply define the church as those who accept those claims. But when you go back and look at the history of the church, the Eastern churches that Rome itself recognized as true churches for a millennium never recognized the authority of the Pope over them. So you have this historical fact. The Bishop of Rome recognized Eastern Christians as true Christians. Eastern Christians for that first millennium and ever since have never recognized the Pope as the head of the church. So historically, this claim of the First Vatican is seriously at odds with the history of the church. 
when can you reasonably, historically, talk about the existence of a pope? Is there a pope in the first century, for example, in the apostolic period? Is there any office, any evidence in the apostolic period that any of the apostles, let alone Peter, exercised anything like the kind of hierarchical, universal power claimed by the papacy? Well, you know, I think it's good to start with some definition of terms. The English word pope derives from the Latin word papa, which simply means father. And it came to be a term of regard for the Bishop of Rome. We can find bishops in Rome in the second century. So it is an institution that goes back a long ways. But the key question here is not was there a bishop in Rome, but was there a bishop in Rome that claimed and exercised primacy leadership, control, authority over the whole church. And if that's what we mean by pope, someone with that kind of authority and control, then we certainly don't see it in the first century or the second century or probably even in the third century. And one thing we always have to be very clear about, it seems to me, there's one thing for somebody to make a claim— I can claim that I'm Napoleon. But the other question is... Who, well, you have been walking around with your hands stuffed in your coat. So. And I am short, so I'm cultivating <laughs> uh, the look. Uh, it's one thing to claim something. It's quite another for others to recognize and validate that claim. And when it comes to the papacy, it's interesting. The first pope that we have any record of claiming to be the successor of Peter comes about the year 250. Now, when we in the 21st century here, 250, we think, wow, that's really ancient. That's really a long time ago. But it's as separated from Jesus as we are from George Washington. So if I sit here today and say, you know, I'm the successor of George Washington. He wanted me to be president. A lot of people would say, you know, you were better looking as Napoleon. This claim of the papacy, 200 years after the event to be the successor of Peter, at least as far as the historical record shows, is really quite a late event, 200 years. is a long period of time. But even more significantly, although the papacy seems to begin to claim that about 250, the church generally doesn't recognize it. None of the seven first ecumenical councils recognized by Rome and by Eastern Orthodoxy acknowledges the Pope as the successor of Peter. That takes us all the way down to the 8th century. So, Rome may be claiming to be the successor of Peter, but not one of the ecumenical councils down to the 8th century recognizes that claim in its actions and in its references to the Bishop of Rome. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So, in the apostolic period, the first century, so from the ascension of Jesus until the close of the first century, 99 AD, 180, there is no evidence of anything like a papacy. There's no hard evidence that Peter was ever in Rome. Exactly. Which would be of the essence of a, <laughs> of a Petrine Roman papacy. Exactly. And, you know, the Roman claim is that Peter is the first bishop of Rome. Well, if that's true, why is there no reference in Acts to Peter being in Rome? Why is there no reference in Romans to Peter being in Rome? Why is there no evidence in the very last of Paul's epistles to anything about Peter being in Rome? The New Testament says nothing about Peter being in Rome, and Peter in his own letters makes no claims about being in Rome or about being prince of the apostles or head of the church. So, it's possible that he was there, but right. there's no evidence of anything like a Petrine 
papacy in the apostolic period. And the second century church makes no reference to anything like a papacy or a Petrine succession. So from 100 to 200 AD, for 100 years after the close of the apostolic period, where there's a lot of debate about what it was they had received from the apostles, where there's a lot of concern about recognizing what is and isn't canonical, and there's a lot of sort of hammering out of the implications of the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles as recorded in the New Testament. There's no discussion of anything like a papacy or even a single monarchical bishop over all of the churches. No, exactly. Exactly. And what you do see beginning to emerge in the 4th and 5th century is a notion of patriarchs, of kind of, we could say, super bishops, archbishops, over regions of the church. And the ecumenical councils recognize the Bishop of Rome as one of these patriarchs, and indeed the leading of those patriarchs. But the reason offered in those ecumenical decisions is because he's bishop of the old imperial capital. It's because of the prestige of Rome not because of the Petrine connection that the Bishop of Rome is recognized as having a position of prestige in the church, but not a prestige of monarchy in the church. That's what First Vatican Council in the 19th century claims, that the Pope is a monarch in the church. That's not recognized anywhere in the ancient church and is hardly claimed by the papacy in the ancient church. When we see in English the word bishop, we tend to think of a prince, an ecclesiastical prince, or a regional manager, to put it in business terms, right. that's head over a certain area, a diocese. But in the ancient church, in Scripture, and in the second century, when you see the word bishop or episkopos, from which we get episcopacy, it doesn't necessarily mean a regional manager. Is that right? Absolutely. In the Scripture, of course, episkopos, the Greek word from which we get the word bishop, we particularly get our word episcopal directly from that Greek word, that word that means supervisor, overseer, is a synonym with the word presbuteros or elder. They're talking about two different aspects of the same job. And uh, as time goes on, and as the church begins to grow, the bishop is probably best understood in modern terms as a kind of senior pastor, as the preaching pastor in a congregation. And that was his principal task for centuries in the church. It was to be a preacher and uh, to be a student of the scripture, to be an edifier of the people of God through the preaching of the word, and to fulfill pastoral functions. As the church grew and grew and grew, gradually he had staff supporting him that he had to oversee, and that leads to the gradual development of what we see today as this kind of ruling authority of a bishop over a diocese, over a region. But almost through the whole ancient church period, bishops are best understood as senior pastors locally. Each fall, I sit down with a group of students and we read through the Apostolic Fathers in one of our courses. And this is a collection of documents from the second century, one of which, or one part of which, is a collection of letters from Ignatius of Antioch. And Romanists frequently appeal to Ignatius of Antioch as evidence of something like the beginnings of a papacy. But if one actually sits down and reads Ignatius in context, it's very interesting that A, he never says anything about anything like a papacy, and B, he consistently talks about three offices, not even two, three. He talks about the episcopos, the presbyteroi, right, the elders, and the diaconoi, the deacons. So the pastor, we could translate, bishop possibly, but pastor is a fair translation, overseer, if you want to look for a neutral translation, elders and deacons. And he frequently makes them correlate 
In other words, there's no hierarchy in Ignatius of Antioch. Mm -hmm. So the place where they most frequently appeal actually works against them. Right. And, you know, another very early extra-canonical writing is the first letter of Clement of Rome that Rome recognizes as one of the immediate successors of Peter, either the second pope or maybe third or fourth, but very close after Peter. And what's intriguing to read first Clement is it breathes exactly the spirit of Peter's first letter. And that spirit is a humble spirit, no claims of authority over the church to which Clement is writing. It's a letter full of scriptural quotation. It's clear that authority and truth is to be found in scripture. It's a letter that seems to teach justification by faith alone. It's very remarkable as a letter. But the main thing that I come away with is the same spirit of humility, the same determination not to domineer over other churches that we find in Peter's first letter. And it's completely at odds with the later claims of the Roman bishops, Later, Clay. We could say that he's a successor of Peter theologically. Yes. I mean, history really supports the notion he was a bishop in Rome. We ought to say, in fairness, that the tradition that Peter died in Rome is a very ancient tradition. So I'm not staking a lot on the claim that Peter was never in Rome, but it's a little hard when you read Paul's letter to the Romans and see there an established, apparently somewhat sizable, somewhat sophisticated church to think that that church wouldn't have clerical leadership. And so to say that church in Paul's day was well-developed but had no bishop just seems peculiar. And yet, if they want to try to say Peter was there as the first bishop, how come Paul doesn't address him? It's very strange from their point of view. So, as a matter of history, the claims are very, very tenuous with respect to the first century and the second century. And as you said, it's really only the middle of the third century that you even begin to get anything like a hint of the kind of office that we're thinking about. Right. And even then, you could go to the early seventh century and look at a quote-unquote pope who essentially, Gregory the Great, disavows what we think of as the papacy. Right. He's very content to be seen as a fellow patriarch with the Eastern patriarchs. So there is a growing sort of centralization of the church. Right. What's happening in the middle of the third century that would cause people to begin to look at the Roman bishop as a sort of leader? Well, increasingly, the Western Empire is threatened by barbarian invasions. And it's very interesting that the pope in the ancient period who makes the strongest claims for the papacy is Leo I, Leo the Great, in the 5th century. He's making those claims at the time that the empire is collapsing all around him. And he bases those claims on a forgery. I think Leo probably sincerely believed it was a true document. But somewhere around 400, there emerges a forgery called the Clementine Recognitions, which claims to have been written by this same Clement that I referred to, who did write a letter around the year 100. And these Clementine Recognitions claim to be a letter from Clement to James, Jesus' brother, in which Clement says that Peter wanted his successors as Bishop of Rome to be head of the whole church, and that uh, Peter's authority would pass to his successors. It's, it's what Leo wanted to hear, and I think he was very sincere, but it's a forgery. It's not true. 
And there's a history of forgery yes. in connection with the papacy, yes. which is a remarkable thing to think about. Now, we're not talking necessarily about conspiracies. No. There's a difference here. Yeah. But it is the case that over the history of the papacy, there have been forged documents on which papal claims have been right. based. In the early Middle Ages, the, the most famous, of course, is the Donation of Constantine, which claims that the Emperor Constantine gave the whole Western Empire to the Pope. Which has always struck me as a kind of mixed bag for the papacy, because the papacy claims its authority comes directly from Christ, and yet in citing the donation of Constantine, they sort of have to recognize that Constantine had the authority to give it to the Pope. But anyway, we don't need to get into those weedy details here. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So, from where did the papacy come? If it's not in the first century, not in the second, not really in the third, and beginning to emerge a little bit in the fourth and fifth but still up in the air as late as the early 7th century. What is the papacy then, and from where did it really come, in the way that we know it, with all the regalia, all of the claims of authority, etc.? Well, again, we have to distinguish claims of authority from actual exercise of authority, and the actual exercise of authority developed very slowly and very gradually, and really develops only in the early Middle Ages, I would say, maybe even beyond the earliest Middle Ages, before the papacy begins actually exercise authority over the Western Church in any significant kind of way. So, yeah, from a historian's point of view, the emergence of an authoritative leader in the Western Church even in the Western Church, again, saying he never had authority over the Eastern Churches, is really a pretty late development, probably 9th or 10th century. I mean, we're talking a millennium into the history of the Church before the papacy is actually exercising anything close to the kinds of claims they're later making. So, when the Protestants rejected the papacy as a corruption— not instituted by Christ, not grounded in the scriptures, not recognized by the ancient church. These were not mere polemics. These were recognitions of actual historical truths. Right. And while, of course, for centuries the papacy had exercised great authority in the church, the early Protestant reformers were very careful students of church history, and they knew, not as much as we know today, but they knew a fair bit about how these papal claims were not historically valid. They also knew that there was a continuing witness, even in the heyday of papal power in the Middle Ages, that challenged that power. And, you know, often we hear about how uh, the Protestant reformers declared the Pope an Antichrist. 
that was not a new charge that they brought. That was a charge that had been raised time and time again, to be sure by a small minority, but still raised in the Middle Ages against the papacy because of its power, its corruption, its wealth, and its abuse of power. William of Ockham was one of the first to call the papacy Antichrist. And so I often say, we Protestants, we agree with William of Ockham. This isn't something that we invented some angry polemic after the fact. We were really rejecting a medieval invention that in the way that they knew it in the 16th century was really only five or 600 years old. Right. And Gregory the Great, one of the great popes of history around the year 600, he declared that anyone who claimed to be universal bishop was exhibiting the spirit of Antichrist. So it goes all the way back there. We can agree with Gregory on that point. Now, he made that point sort of against the patriarch of Constantinople, but still, there it is. Anyone (laughs) claiming to be universal bishop is of the spirit of Antichrist. And you can't have Gregory the Great as Peter's successor, one in the line of succession of popes, who uttered something that is manifestly true. You can't have him as pope and yet say, well, he's completely wrong about that. At least it creates a problem for them. Well, it creates a historical tension. Now, Rome has a theology of all these things, and that's why the First Vatican Council said only what a pope declares from his throne. So whatever Rome doesn't like in its own history, they just say, well, that wasn't declared from the throne. So, I mean, that's a neat kind of theological rationalization, but I just don't think it works historically if one wants to take a hard look at what the history actually says. And there are some serious anomalies historically with the papacy. Let's go through some of those. Well, my own favorite of late, because I've just been reading about this, is Rome's relation to the 15th canon of the Council of Nicaea. Now, the Council of Nicaea, you remember, was the first ecumenical council called by the Emperor Constantine in 325, primarily to deal with the problem of Arianism. But that council not only declared the eternal divinity of our Lord, but it also dealt with certain issues in the life of the church that needed discipline. And so amongst the canons, the 15th canon saw that there was a lot of confusion being caused by bishops moving from one see, as they call it, one bishopric to another. And so canon 15 of the Council of Nicaea declares that no bishop may move to another See Now, what that means is that if you're bishop of place X, that's where you have to spend your whole ministry. You can't go to Y or Z because it's more prestigious or you like them better or whatever. It's a move to keep bishops in their place. That decision of Nicaea was reiterated at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, and it appears that the church follows this. And one of your favorite episodes in papal history is what is sometimes called the Cadaver Synod. It's the occasion in the ninth century. And this is a true story. This is a true story. This is not just Protestant polemic. Okay, and that's really important because I want the listener to understand that what you're about to say is actual history. It actually happened. It's it's going to sound fantastic. It's going to sound like something, some anti-Roman Protestant, you know, made up in the 19th century or something you'd read about in a chick track or something like that. So it, it sounds... Crazy. It sounds like it couldn't possibly You should explain what a chick tract is or you'll be in trouble for attacking (laughs) women. A cartoonist named Jack Chick used to publish cartoon tracts that people handed out, evangelistic tracts, and sometimes he would make some pretty wild claims about things. Right. That's the short story of what a chick tract is. And so what you're about to say is fact. It really happened. It's not something that people made up. It's not something that you have to have some secret knowledge to know about, but it's not something that Rome likes to talk about. All right. In 897, Pope Stephen VII 
dug up the body of his predecessor, who had been dead about nine months, and brought the corpse into the room in which the synod was meeting, wanting the synod to declare that his predecessor, Pope Formosus, had not been canonically elected, and therefore all of his actions as pope were invalid. And one of the charges brought against the cadaver of Pope Formosus was that he had violated Canon 15 of the Council of Nicaea, because Pope Formosus had been a bishop in another diocese before he was elected pope. So, Pope Stephen said he is not eligible to be elected pope because he's already been a bishop, and therefore to elect him pope is to violate Canon 15 of the Council of Nicaea, and Pope Stephen got Pope Formosus deposed on that ground. Now, we don't need to get into all the details. Pope Stephen is later himself deposed and murdered. It's a pretty seedy story all the way around. They actually cut off some of the fingers of the cadaver to show that he had no right to raise his hand in papal blessing. And just to be clear, when you say cadaver, you're talking about? A corpse. Okay, just so that everyone understands what we're talking about. Yes. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Now, I mean, the irony is, of course, that Pope Stephen needed to depose Pope Formosus because Pope Stephen had been a bishop before he was elected bishop of Rome, but he'd been made a bishop by Pope Formosus. So if he could depose Formosus, then he wouldn't have been a bishop, and therefore he wasn't canonically prohibited from becoming bishop of Rome. If you haven't followed that, it's okay, because it doesn't really matter. And when he tried... Pope Formosus. In what state was Pope Formosus? A decaying corpse. Okay. Yes. You are taking way too much uh, joy in this. Uh, (laughs) Well, I want the listener to have a, a vivid picture. It's a vivid picture. In the mind. So he's sitting in the chair being tried, even though... He didn't seem to care. He didn't seem to care. But the really crucial point here is that as late as almost the year 900, bishops of Rome are taking Canon 15 of the Council of Nicaea as binding on them. If Canon 15 of the Council of Nicaea is in fact binding on bishops of Rome, then no bishop of Rome has been elected canonically in centuries and centuries. Rome has had no bishop, according to the Council of Nicaea, because almost all of them are elected from some other bishopric for centuries and centuries. And this would be highly problematic then for the claim of, or fatal to, the claim of an unbroken succession of Petrine representatives. Except... Of course, Rome has a theological way of getting around the historical problems it faces. And the theological solution was provided by the great medieval jurist and canon theologian Gratian in his Decretum, where he wrote, The Holy Roman Church imparts right and authority to the sacred canons, but is not bound by them. For it has the right of establishing canons, since it is the hinge and head of all churches, from whose ruling no one may dissent. So, the the historical problem of Canon 15 of the Council of Trent is solved by Gratian saying, theologically, popes have a right to follow canons or not follow canons because they're the head of the church. That may work theologically if you're already committed to the Bishop of Rome. It doesn't work historically because clearly the bishops of Rome still in the ninth century thought they were bound and therefore you have a papal action, decision, precedent, tradition. Isn't Rome all about tradition? You see, the historic claims just fall apart, it seems to me, on close examination. You have to be so 
committed to a theology that you set all history aside to maintain the claims of the papacy. And for those of us who don't accept Rome's theology, we're entitled not to be persuaded by Rome's theology when it is so at variance with known objective historical facts. The historical evidence is simply overwhelming against the claims of Rome that it today is doing what has always been done for 2,000 years. What it does today, it has been doing maybe for 1,000 years, and that's a long time. But to claim that there is any evidence, any substantial evidence from the ancient church to support the kind of claims made at the First Vatican Council is just completely illegitimate. And we haven't even gotten to the Avignon papacy. The Avignon papacy doesn't matter a huge amount. Except that Rome can't tell you which of the two, or at one point three, people claiming to be the true successor of St. Peter really was the true successor, or why one or two of them were not. You can search, and their historians and their theologians simply don't answer that question, because they can't, because the minute they do, they've caught themselves in an insoluble dilemma. That's true. I mean, they will tell you who were the real bishops at the time, but again, it's— They can't tell you why. Yeah, it's again a theological argument, not a historical. Other than we say so. Right, exactly. And there's a certain point, you know, when you're a five-year-old child and mom and dad say, do this, and you say, why? And they say, because we say so. Okay, that's fine. But we're not five-year-old children. Well, you know, when you look at the historical record, it seems to me, with any sort of objectivity, and heaven knows we're not all, most of us, very objective or interested in history. Or at least not perfectly objective. Yeah. The only way Rome's claims can be substantiated is in the spirit of St. Ignatius of Loyola, who said, I will believe black is white and white is black if the church tells me. It's that kind of submissive spirit that says, don't trouble me with the facts. I trust the church. Now, that's not entirely irrational because these people trust the church because the church leadership has told them we can explain all these problems away. They never do. But they can't really explain them away. (laughs) They haven't, and they don't. And so you're really talking here, ultimately, about implicit faith. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Ignatius of Loyola had implicit faith in the church, and confessional Protestants have implicit faith in Holy Scripture. It's not that we don't love the church, it's not that we don't trust the church, but we put our trust, first of all, in Scripture, and we say the church works for Scripture, not the reverse. Right, and we argue vigorously that there's plenty of evidence to support our trust in Scripture. This is not an irrational action on our part. And somebody out there who's well-informed might say, well, aren't there as many historians that attack the veracity of the New Testament as the historians you're citing to attack the veracity of Roman claims in the history of the church? There's a huge difference. The whole New Testament is written within a few decades' time together, and those who attack the historical veracity of the New Testament are large dealing with speculative reconstructions of the first century for which they don't really have any hard evidence. That's very different from the abundant hard evidence we have in looking at the history of papal claim. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.